Hello and welcome to the Combat Stress 100 podcast. My name is Tom Fox. To commemorate 100 years of Combat Stress, in 2019 the charity worked with the UK reminiscence charity Age Exchange to travel the length and breadth of the UK recording interviews with veterans who've been treated by Combat Stress. They called the project Combat Stress 100. Funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, the charities brought together veterans to tell their powerful stories, often for the first time in public. If you have any issues with the quality of sound, please be aware that veterans' interviews are captured in studio conditions, but our clinical team recorded their pieces at home due to COVID. In this episode, we'll hear from veterans with military-related psychological trauma about what happened when they transitioned from the military to Civvy Street. Now, though, Lee Robinson, Principal Clinical Psychologist at Combat Stress, tells us what the transition can do to veterans' mental health and why. Most veterans successfully transition to Sibby Street. So thankfully, the majority of our service personnel leave the military enriched by the experience and make the transition to civilian life with highly, highly valuable and transferable skills knowledge and personal and professional qualities. Um, Unfortunately though, a significant proportion find the transition to civilian life particularly challenging. Regardless of background or reasons for joining, the military provides structure, routine, boundaries and discipline, a safeness, uncertainty and predictability. It takes care of fundamental human needs such as accommodation, food, clothing and financial security. In addition, acceptance into the military family provides those who adopt military customs, values and standards a deeply powerful sense of military identity that's really unparalleled. For these very reasons, the many who join the military from particularly difficult circumstances and or have pre-existing vulnerabilities to mental health problems The military life can be hugely protective. Indeed, it's the very loss of these things that can make the transition so challenging for some. Outside the gate, uh, when discharged from the military, the new freedom and autonomy without the enforced routine and structure can actually feel quite daunting and overwhelming. With no senior NCO barking orders at you, uh, nor checking your personal hygiene, no PTI taking you for your your morning fizz or your eight-mile tab, Basic daily activities can can actually start to slip. Responsibility then becomes your own rather than something external. Without the military now taking care of personal administration, this can be quite significant. Some struggle financially and find it difficult to secure stable accommodation and gainful employment, possibly having never had to do any of this administration before. It was all provided by the military. And certainly many will be unfamiliar in promoting themselves to potential civilian employers. Some find the civilian world and mindset completely different to what they've known, a world that's vague, indecisive and disordered, chaotic, which can lead to frustration and a sense of alienation from friends, colleagues and and their civilian family. You can see them longing to return to their military buddies, their military family. Of course, some are still processing the distressing things that they witnessed and endured in theatres of war where mental distress and emotional expression is often viewed as a weakness. In addition to the belief that civilians couldn't possibly understand, these things are bottled up, leading to the veteran feeling ever more distant and detached from those around them and reluctant to seek help. 
Added to that, minority veteran groups such as black, Asian and ethnic minority veterans, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender or questioning veterans, service women and reservists, they could be particularly vulnerable to mental health problems and adjustment difficulties after leaving the military. Research suggests that this is partly due to a perception that these groups in particular, more so than others, have to prove themselves as meeting these traditional masculine expectations. Reservists in particular, uh, unlike regular service personnel, reservists do not deploy uh, typically with their unit uh, and are often individual replacements with a regular unit. They do not return from deployment to a large military community. Rather, they tend to be quite geographically dispersed and return to their civilian community, to family, friends, work colleagues, people who have not shared the experiences they have may not be so immersed in military culture as the families of regular personnel. Indeed, may have quite mixed feelings about the choices the reservists have made to volunteer themselves to such deployments. So unlike regulars who, who may only experience one, albeit quite large and significant transition, reservists may be exposed to multiple transitions. Unsurprising then that research indicates reservists are particularly vulnerable to mental health problems, perhaps because they transition more frequently from one culture to the other, perhaps not feeling fully identified or connected with either. Okay. So, when you actually left the, the armed forces, I mean, how did you find that transition from sort of being a you know a, a squaddy to a civilian? And when did you actually leave? It was. It was. <laughs> It was really, really difficult. In fact, it was terrible, to be fair, uh, because I was a brigade, brigade warrant officer working down in Bursbrook Mill uh, in charge of the Ellie fleet. And I drove, the day I left the army in 2003, I drove from Bursbrook Mill down to the docks at Belfast, onto a ferry and home, and that night I was at my mum's. So me leaving the army, it, it was just a complete body blow to me. One morning, I was in the army in charge of a, I don't know, multi-million pound Ellie fleet, and that night I was sat at my mum's and I wasn't in the army. And I just didn't cope at all well with it at all. I was out drinking, like a lot of blokes will tell you, I was out drinking, fighting, anything. I just, looking back now, I believe the problem was that I had no stress. Where I was living in a stressful environment, I then didn't have any. Right. And I don't think I could cope with that fact, you know. Okay. And when, uh, when was that? That was back in 2003. Okay. I don't think I'd be where I am now in my life without being in the military. Yeah. You know, and it's given me good stead. But it's not always quite so easy to suck it up. Yeah. Um, but you bottle it away because you've got a guy that you've got to watch his back. You know, and as we say, we, we die for each other. Yeah, of course. You know, not a problem. that it, it, You wouldn't even hesitate. But when I had my knee replacement... It gave me too much time to think mm. when I was in Surling Street. And it come back to haunt me in a big, big way. Mm. Well, that, that actually puts me on to the next question, which was when you actually left the armed forces, uh, did you find it hard, the transition into civilian life from the military? Yeah, I, th I think most soldiers will find that transition very hard. It's a, it's a massive difference. You know, you are used to taking orders. Even though you, you think for yourself, that transition is very hard because civilian life is 
nothing like the military. And not being disrespectful to civvies, they have no clue that they don't know how we tick. Yeah. You know, and you lose that buddy buddy system, that bond that you will never get anywhere else, only in the armed forces. And it was a big transition for me. I I struggled and struggled for years. You know, and I I still struggle a little bit now with them, but it's it's hard. You know, it, it really is a hard transition. When were that you left the forces? I came out on the 13th of August, 1984. Okay. When did you leave the armed forces? Um, did you find it hard to tra- transition from the military back to civilian life? I'm still there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've not. I've not left. Yeah. Um, I still speak to quite a few guys that are still serving and. Okay. As daft as it sounds, I'd love to be back there. You and me both, mate. But I don't think I'll ever will be a civvy again. It's sort of, it's like riding a bike, you never forget. Yeah. That's how I, that's how I vision it. Yeah, it's it, it's quite hard, isn't it, to move back to civilian life and yeah. not be a civil. Because you're not a civil. Never will be a civil. <laughs> and I think on my paperwork, even though I'd officially come back with the inn, I think somebody officially changed that I was medically evacuated on my last day of deployment. So um, rather than being demobilised back into civilian life, they put me on P0. Um, I was medically downgraded to P0. And uh, said, right, you know, when, you know, if we demobilised you, you'd be going round to your local GP tomorrow, mm. well, tomorrow, but, you know, going back to the NHS service. We'll see if we keep you on mobilised service as a regular soldier. We can keep you in, uh, in the DCMH, the Defence Community Mental Health Team service, and treat you through that. So that's what they did. They kept me on mobilised service on P0 for nearly a year after my mobilised service put me through treatment Um, and most of 2013 I was on mobilised service on P0 so on sick leave really Mm. from my so though I belonged to my TA unit up the road um, I was still on mobilised service Um, uh, and towards the end of the year said I was well enough to go back to my civilian job so they demobilised me I had shed loads of leave to take so I eventually went back to my civilian job working in accident emergency and I think I lasted about three weeks uh, before I collapsed really well I've had an emotional breakdown in my civilian job I can I'd gone back to the civilian accident emergency department and um, couldn't cope with it it's been really tough, actually, going. Oh. And working with people who haven't been out. Yeah, and it's... On the tours you have to try and go back to normality is difficult for most people. Sometimes, I, I think in Bastion, in the emergency department there, um, I'd speak to the matron and I'd say, you know, we're getting whatever casualties in. I've called in my off-duty, you know, I'm saving part of my staff who are coming on and... You know, fresh staff, have some fresh staff, you know. So you know, you'd have like 
two shifts were off duty and being like, one, you want to save, you want to preserve. And one shift you can pull in because you need some fresh guys coming on in a few hours. Mm. So I'd say, you know, I need some extra staff from the hospital. So you pull staff up from the wards and intensive care and theatres and people would actually do their job. Do as, the, as Mr. Makin used to say, just do your fucking job. And he was the lab, he was the guy in the labs. And people would actually pull together and work. And then you come back to, and I don't really be hugely derogatory, but you know, it's better. To be in the A&E department at Cambastion, you had a genuine good reason to go there. Um, uh, and the staff there were motivated and hardworking and knew what they wanted to do, whereas the NHS is struggling, short-staffed. People are there because they can't get GP appointments. People are there because they don't know where else to go. It's a different kettle of fish. But I think sometimes you look back at Bastion and you think you get the message over the net, there'll be nine-liners. We used to talk about nine-liners. Uh, and you know how many's coming in, how many casualties are coming in, and uh, you'll be prepared and organised. And actually, that felt like the real, feels like the real world sometimes. That seems like the sense. Yeah. Sorry, Billy. Pardon? So it's your right, so it feels like the real world. Like yeah. Things worked. And there was, you know, skills and drills and all those things and procedures. And, you know, we could turn around a patient in, in the A&E, in the emergency department in minutes. And everybody had their role to do. And, uh, and uh, even though I was the OC and we have a commanding thing when these things were coming in. Um, uh I regularly still, you know, have my two ICs say, today, two IC, you're taking charge. You know, we're only getting three or four in today. So in that good way that you make sure that, you know, your junior staff can take over. Mm. You know, I had everybody who could run the unit by the time we, you could run the department by the end of the, in the, by the time we left. And um, I'd actually go in and be one of the nurses in the recess. Mm. So. How did this affect your family? Um, uh, my wife's devastated. Yeah. My wife's really struggling. Um, I think years ago, we got married in 2004, and I think uh, we said sort of like a, a little bit light-hearted and tongue-in-cheek that at the time that if I'd been in any other army unit other than a medical role, we probably wouldn't have got married. Mm. Uh, I think she's felt as if the army's destroyed me and broken me. How do you feel about that? Do you feel the same way? Mm, no. Help is available. Support services for veterans have come on a great deal in recent years, and there is a growing network of experienced individuals and teams who are absolutely committed to ensuring our veterans are well looked after following their, their service. Veterans or concerned family members can call our helpline, of course, on 0800 138 1619. And not only do we have skilled and experienced clinicians who can support you with your mental health needs, with evidence-based treatment for particular problems, we also have uh, a network of peer support coordinators and volunteers across the UK. Veterans themselves who have taken a similar journey, walked walked in your shoes. There are regular groups 
of other veterans uh, supported by our peer support coordinators, all who have similar stories of their military time and, and transition from the military. You're not alone. You can also access a whole host of dedicated veteran services in your area by accessing the Veterans Gateway through www.veteransgateway.org.uk. But the important thing to remember is that it takes real courage to take the first step. We know that, you know, asking for help goes against the grain for most of you guys. Pick up the phone, ask for help. That is the most critical thing. The rest is easy. Once you've made that first step, the rest will take care of itself. Just let somebody know that you need support. I know that some of you listening to this will be affected by what you heard. Whether you're a veteran or a friend or relative of a veteran, the Combat Stress 24-hour helpline is there for you. Combat Stress is a charity that is heavily dependent on public donations. If you can help, text GIVE to 70004 to donate £5. Please note, we may contact you about this campaign and the work our charity does. To give £5 but to opt out from further contact from us, text GIVE NO. Text cost your standard network rate plus your £5 donation. Combat Stress will receive 100% of your donation. Please obtain the bill payer's permission before you text. The customer care line is 01372 587 153. Charity number 206002. Next time on the Combat Stress 100 podcast, PTSD and complex PTSD rarely strike on their own. Depression, anxiety, anger or substance misuse tend to come with the territory. Listen in to the true stories of veterans who turn their lives around and from the clinicians who help them on that journey. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.